I'll tell you a little bit about myself. So uh, I'm originally from Greensboro, uh, Alabama. Has anybody ever been to or through Greensboro? Usually you go through it, not to it. Uh, but it's about an hour uh, south of here or so. And uh, I grew up Catholic, uh, left the Catholic Church when I was about 14. Uh, but growing up, I uh, was really scared of the Bible. Actually, it was not a book that I had any desire to pick up and read whatsoever. I didn't know how to use a Bible. I didn't know what the big numbers represented or what the little numbers represented. Uh, I had no idea how to find a Bible verse. I remember one time when I was a kid, I don't know, I was probably maybe nine, ten years old, something like that, and a friend of mine invited me over to his house, and this was on a Saturday night, and then I woke up the next morning, and he said, hey man, we're going to go to church. I was like, hey man, this was not part of the deal, because <laughs> uh, I know he went to a Baptist church, man, you know Baptists, they're crazy, right? And so uh, we go to this Baptist church, we're sitting in this Sunday school class, and the teacher asked me to find a Bible verse, and I had no idea how to do that. And so uh, in Catholicism, whenever you're 12, you go through a series of what they call confirmation classes, and so uh, I went through a year of those classes. Once you go through those, then you go to confession for the first time, then you get to participate in communion and things like that. We get to the end. It's the night that we're supposed to graduate, and we have this test about all kinds of things Catholic doctrine related, right? I failed the test. So I am a Catholic dropout who was totally scared of the Bible, had no desire to read the Bible, and yet by God's grace and God's grace alone, uh, I find myself as a pastor who now loves the Word of God. I love it. And I can only attribute that to his grace and not anything that I have done. And so I am so glad to be able to spend some time with you guys tonight and kind of walk through maybe some just some nuts and bolts kind of things. And feel free to stop me throughout and ask questions or whatever. That's what I like about these kind of setups versus preaching on Sunday morning. I enjoy preaching, but I really love uh, these kind of environments as well. And I'm also glad that I'm the first one to do this with you guys. So I'm going to set a nice low bar here, all right? And I'm also glad to know there's not a high bar that I'm going to hit my forehead on, <laughs> okay? Um, so let's uh, go ahead and open up to Genesis chapter 2, and we're going to do kind of a case study tonight on Genesis 2. Anytime we open up the Bible, we have a goal in mind, right? Something that we're trying to attain. After I became a believer, I was still struggling with what I should do with my life. And so the way that I would approach the Bible would be something like this. God, speak to me. I need to know. Should I major in history or should I drop out and go to fire college? This was a legit internal struggle within me, okay? And so I would uh, open up randomly. All right, here we go. Finger down. You can't look because that's cheating, right? So close your eyes, finger down. Okay, I'm in Isaiah 17.1, an oracle concerning Damascus. Behold, Damascus will cease to be a city and will become a heap of ruins. Okay, Lord. Um, it's a little cryptic. <laughs> I'm not sure what... Oh, oh wait a minute. Maybe... Uh, whenever a building's on fire, it becomes a heap of ruins, right? So maybe that is so fire college, right? That's it, huh? I think, guys, there's a better way to approach the Bible. Here's the good news when it comes to the Word of God. God is not trying to hide himself from us. 
And he's not trying to make us play guessing games to figure out what it is that he wants us to know. When God gave us the word of God, I believe he used the same rules of normal communication that you and I use every single day. And I think to argue against that, the burden of proof would be on the person that would say we ought to treat the Bible differently. Because if you just read the Bible, the way that it reads, its own rules of how to read it kind of surface out of the text itself, right? Okay, so what is the goal of Bible study? Here it is, at least whenever it comes to interpreting the Bible. This maybe is not the total end game, but this is a starting point, all right? The goal of Bible study is to discover the author's original intent. We want to discover the author's original intent. All right? What's your name, brother? Jackson. Okay, so imagine that I text Jackson. All right? This is going to be an example in the utter ridiculous realm. I text Jackson. I say, hey, man, uh, you want to come over for tacos on Tuesday? Because that's what you do on Tuesday, right? You eat tacos. So I say, hey, man, you want to come over and eat tacos on Tuesday? And then Jackson replies back and says, Drew, I would love to move in with you. That that would be great. Okay. Um, somewhere there was a miscommunication, right? Now, I, I would probably reply back and say, hey man, not really what I was intending to say there. And Jackson could say, well, but you know, in my culture where I come from, when you invite someone over to your house for tacos on Tuesday, you're inviting them to come and, and to live with you. To which I would reply, that's great, Jackson, in your culture but I was the author of the text. And so your goal in receiving my text is not to uh, come up with what you want it to mean, but you have to discover what I meant by that text. Does that make sense? That's what we're talking about in authorial intent, is that whenever an author sits down to write something, he or she has a message that they want you to receive and understand. Now, believe it or not, this is actually a discussion of a lot of scholarly debate today. Uh, text. Do they have objective meaning, or do we as readers get to determine the meaning based on how we interact with the text? Okay, But in those discussions between scholars, did you know that both scholars operate off authorial intent? Even as you are arguing against authorial intent, you are assuming authorial intent when you're making your argument. Does that make sense? Okay? In other words, the whole time that I've been speaking so far tonight, you have been working by the rules of authorial intent. The whole purpose of communication is for us to try to understand what the author means by his or her words. And if we stop playing by those rules, then communication essentially breaks down, right? Like there's no point in me even trying to communicate with you then if you can assign whatever meaning you want to my words. Here's the point I'm making. When we come to the Word of God, the exact same thing applies. Okay, God has inspired authors, and those authors have a definite intent. And our goal when we're studying the Bible is we want to figure out what that intent was. Okay, So, how do we do this? How do we discover the author's intent? There are Three different contexts that you really want to consider, okay? First of all, we want to consider the historical, cultural 
context, the historical cultural context. When you open up to a book of the Bible, it's helpful to know, okay, who wrote this? Who was this written to? If you can discover that, some books that's a little bit harder than others. Uh, when was this book written? When did the author sit down to write? Uh, and what was the purpose of the writing? What was this author wanting to do overall? Like, you know, 40,000 foot view. What was this author trying to accomplish in this book? Okay, here's an example that whenever I teach older groups, it applies pretty well. I'm going to see if it applies with this group, okay? This might be a dated example. If it is, I'm sorry. Where were you at on 9-11? How many of you were born on 9-11? Okay. <laughs> yep, that one dated. Okay, scratch that. <laughs> what happened on 9-11? I remember. It's a fairly, uh, fairly historic event in the life of our... Yes, thank you, brother. <laughs> Terrorist attack. You guys remember this? The Twin Towers in New York, the planes, and then the Pentagon? Okay. So, whenever I say 9-11 to people who were alive at that time, guess what they don't have to do? Struggle to come up with the answer, right? I can just say, where were you at on 9-11? You know where I was at? I was in Coach Kelly's literature class in seventh grade, and I had no idea what the Twin Towers even were before that time. That's where I was at on 9-11. The reason why, maybe it's took you a little bit longer to try to remember, okay, what is he getting at, is because you were not a part of that historical context when that event happened. You were outside of that context, okay? Whenever it comes to the scriptures, the scriptures were written for us, but they were not originally written to us, okay? Think about 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians was addressed to a church that existed in the first century A.D., all right? Not to BCM in the 21st century in America. And so because we are outside of that context, it's helpful as best we can to use the tools that we have to tap into that context so that we can understand things that the author and the audience simply could assume between one another, all right? Does that make sense? So that's historical cultural context. Next, we want to consider the literary context, all right? That's what comes before my passage, and what is coming after my passage, all right? Philippians 4.13. Does anybody know that passage just offhand? Philippians 4.13. Amen. How do we normally uh, see that text applied? Steph Curry. <laughs> That's right. Usually in athletic context, right? Uh, Tim Tebow. Uh, those kind of, and I love Tim, and I love Steph, <laughs> right? Um, but we usually see it applied in athletic context, and so the idea is, hey man, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. So imagine, I don't even have to imagine this, this is a real life story, all right? I really wanted to play baseball growing up, and, uh, but the thing is, I was scared to get hit with a baseball, because they throw it really hard, <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know if I trust people my age to aim that thing correctly, all right? But imagine that I go to my youth pastor and I say, man, I really want to go on the baseball team, but I really don't have any talent for baseball. What do you think I should do? And the youth pastor says, Drew, Philippians 4.13, my friend, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Well, all right, there we go. That's what I'm talking about. So I go and I try out for baseball 
and I strike out, and then I, you know, keep missing balls that get hit at me, and, uh, and then a true story real quick, this will be a fast one, um, there was one time that I was throwing the ball, and I meant to throw it to the catcher, and I went over his head and hit our coach in the head, and then he um, passed out, and, I, and my friend said, I think you killed the coach because it hit him in the temple, all right? But imagine that I've had this conversation with my youth pastor, right? And he said, Drew, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. So if you want to be on the baseball team, then go be on the baseball team. And then I go, and it's just a spectacular failure. And so what happens to me? I begin to have a crisis of faith. Okay, maybe one or two things here is going on. Um, Maybe my faith wasn't strong enough. Maybe I didn't believe hard enough, right? I should just believe harder that Christ strengthens me for this. Or maybe it's that, maybe I'm just not a believer. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe that's the problem that I'm having. But when you look at the literary context of Philippians chapter 4, what you're going to see is that Paul says things like, whether I'm well fed or whether I'm hungry, whether I'm rich or whether I'm poor, Regardless of the circumstances that I find myself in in life, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The point that Paul was making there is that whether things are going really well for me, whether things are going really poorly for me, it doesn't matter. My circumstances don't matter because I have Jesus. And if I have Jesus, I have everything that I need. All right? So what my youth pastor could have told me is, Drew, you're probably not going to make the baseball team, brother. All right, try golf. And I love golf. I stink at it too, but I do love golf. (sighs) Try golf. But Drew, listen to me. Philippians 4.13, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. What that means, Drew, is that if you fail at making the baseball team or if you succeed at making the baseball team, either one is immaterial because you have Jesus and that's what's most important. You're not defined by the baseball team. Does that make sense? All right, that's literary context. And then finally, canonical context. Canonical. What, what, uh, what do you guys think I mean by canonical? That's kind of a weird, maybe churchy word. Yes, yes, the whole canon of Scripture from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. We call that the canon, okay? And so you want to see... Um, you really want to take stock of, of what is the whole storyline of Scripture. All right? Let me go through this quickly. The Bible can be seen in four major parts. Creation. Fall. Redemption. And new creation. All right. Uh, Gosh. I'm from Greensboro, guys. Sorry. All right. (laughs) Okay. Oftentimes, I think the trap that we can fall into when it comes to the Bible is we can begin to think of the Bible as a loose collection of moral fables. All right. Uh, All kinds of smaller stories within the scriptures. Um, Noah and the ark. Moses and the Red Sea. Uh, Daniel in the lion's den. What are some other well-known stories from Scripture that you guys are aware of? David and Goliath. That's got to be the most famous, I think. Anybody else? Yep, Jonah and the fish. That's right. That's a good one. What? About, one more. Yeah, Joseph and the coat of many colors. Yes. All right. 
Now, here's the deal. If we don't understand that in the scripture there is a storyline, a unified storyline, then what's going to happen is we're going to end up misinterpreting those smaller stories. Think of it like this. In 2016, 2017, somewhere in there, whenever Stranger Things um, first came out, and this is not an official five points endorsement of Stranger Things, um, but uh, we, I was a youth pastor then, and uh, a lot of our students were watching Stranger Things, and so my wife and I, you know, we're very contextual in ministry, and so we needed to do research on what our students were watching, and uh, so we started watching season one, and then I found myself totally addicted uh, to Stranger Things. Any other Stranger Things fans here? Amen. Awesome. Where is Will Byer? Who knows, right? In Stranger Things, you have a unified storyline, right? Okay, everybody tracking with me on that? And that storyline progresses through these smaller episodes, okay? Now, each of these little episodes has its own little storyline, right? Okay? Uh, Here's uh, Hopper, and what's Will's mom's name? Joyce, gosh, Joyce, man. She has such great development throughout the series, right? Um, but, you know, Hopper and Joyce, you know, is there a romantic thing going on there? Who knows, you know? But there's, so, so you have these smaller kind of storylines within each episode, but we understand that each one of those smaller episodes is contributing to the one big storyline, okay? And I'm talking season one here, all right? Because that's the best season. Season one, where is Will Byer? And we think it has something to do, who knows, this crazy hunch, with that really creepy lab right outside of town, huh? Okay, same thing is going on in Scripture. From Genesis to Revelation, there is a unified storyline. And yes, there are smaller episodes within that storyline, but all those episodes are working together to tell this story. And this story can be told in four major plot movements. Part one, creation. Part two, the fall. Part three, redemption, and part four, new creation. Here's the crazy thing about the Bible. We begin in a garden. And you know where we end in Revelation 21 and 22? Back in the garden. And so there's two beautiful bookends to the scripture, and then there's the unfolding story of God in between. All right, And I don't have time to go through all that tonight. Um, But that tells us that you want to, yes, know your passage's historical cultural context. Yes, know your passage's literary context. But then you also want to ask yourself, where does this passage fit in the storyline of Scripture? Okay, and that's canonical context. Okay, so here's our text. We're getting ready to teach a Sunday school class. What's the point of the passage? Well, let's kind of walk through this framework that we've talked about, okay? First of all, let's think through what is the historical cultural context. Now, I've given you what I like to call the six E's of Old Testament history. I'm probably a little too proud of this, all right? Uh, But you can summarize the storyline of the Old Testament in this way, from Eden to Exodus, okay? Uh, From Exodus to entry, that's entry into the promised land. From entry to eruption, so from the time Israel enters into the promised land, a kingdom is developed, and then that kingdom divides into north and south. From eruption to exile, where God's people are sent away from the land because of their sin. And then from exile to Emmanuel. All right, I stretched on Emmanuel trying to get us to the New Testament, but that's at the birth of Jesus, okay? All right, so where does Genesis fall in this line? Well, it's going to be somewhere between uh, the first block that you see here and then the little red block that you see here, okay? How do we know that? And this is where things are going to kind of bleed into the literary context some, okay? But whenever you read 
Genesis, if you were to just sit down and read this book, what you would find is that by the time you get to the end of Genesis, the story isn't over. And you realize, oh, I've got to go to what book comes after Genesis? Exodus. I've got to go to Exodus to see how this story ends. And so then you read through Exodus, and you get to the end of it, and it's a bunch of blueprints for this thing called a tabernacle. All right? That's where reading plans go to die, Exodus 25 through 40. But if you stuck with it through there, you know, you're like mid-February or so, or March, I don't know. I don't know when you get to those in a reading plan. Then you get to Leviticus, and that's really where the reading plan goes to die, right? Okay. Um, But you get to the end of Exodus, you realize, okay, things end with a tabernacle, but nothing has really been settled, so I'm going to keep reading through Leviticus. And as you read through Leviticus, you're getting into some pretty uh, interesting material there, right? And you're wondering, okay, I kind of see how this fits. I see sacrificial system, okay, kind of, sort of, okay, whatever. Let's go to Numbers, all right, all right. And And then the story, and you get to the end of Numbers, and it goes into Deuteronomy. And by the time you get to Deuteronomy, God's people, Israel, are standing right outside of the land of Canaan that God had promised to give them, okay? So that's from uh, Eden, from Eden to Exodus to, from Exodus to entry, the book of Genesis, okay, is going to be right in there because Genesis is a part of a larger collection of writings. The first five books of the Bible, even though they're separated in our Bibles, they're really intended to be understood as a unity because of that storyline that I just told you about. The Jewish people have a name for this collection of books. Anybody know that offhand? Mm -hmm. The Pentateuch or the Torah, okay? Um, Torah is the Hebrew Pentateuch, later Greek uh, rendering of that. Um, But what that tells us is that they see these books in our Bibles as one book, from Genesis to Deuteronomy, and it's telling a story, all right? Okay, so uh, who is this story intended for? My best stab at is that This whole story from Genesis to Deuteronomy, the Torah was originally intended for those Israelites who were getting ready to go into Canaan and take the land, all right? So that would put this book probably at around 1400 BC or so, okay? That's a pretty conservative dating. If you read other scholars, there might be differences of opinion there. There are differences of opinion, Um, but I take a pretty conservative viewpoint on that. Now, let's get um, flip on the back side of your sheet to the literary and canonical context, okay? We were able to situate our book in its historical cultural context by reading through the whole Torah, and that's whenever we see where that falls historically. But it also tells us the layers of context that we have. So, first of all, if you start in this innermost circle here, right, our passage falls within something known as prime, the primeval history. Okay, from Genesis 1-1 to about Genesis 12-3, where God calls Abraham. What's happening in these chapters? Things start out really good, right? Genesis 1 and 2, God creates Adam and Eve. He gives them one rule. What was that rule? That's right, not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay, that's Genesis 1 and 2. Things are just smashing. Then we get to Genesis 3. What happens? Yeah, they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Right, thanks, guys. Appreciate that, right? Okay, and then sin enters into the human heart. And from Genesis 4 to Genesis 11, you basically see the outworking of sin in the human heart. All right? Now, that's why this is kind of capped off as being its own section within Genesis. Because 
the theme is God's dealings with people at a general kind of universal level. It's, it's his general dealings with humanity. But then you get to Genesis chapter 12, and he calls someone. Anybody remember this guy? Who is it? Abraham. That's right. And so from Genesis chapter 12 to Genesis chapter 50, we, we started out broad, Genesis 1 through 11, how God's dealing with sinful humanity. And then we get to Genesis 12, and we're talking about Abraham and his family. And then Genesis 12 through 50 is sometimes known as the patriarchal narratives, okay? That's where we're tracing the family history of Abraham, all right? So that's the next layer of context outside of our passage. We have to take that into account. Then outside of that, we need to realize that Genesis 2 is a part of a larger story. And that story is the Torah. From Genesis 1 to Deuteronomy 34, that's one unit of Scripture. It's one unified storyline. What we usually end up doing with Genesis 1 and 2, and I'm not saying this is illegitimate, but we usually lop Genesis 1 and 2 off, and we all we can talk about is, does science disprove this stuff? And that's all we fixate on. And I'm not saying those questions are not important. They are. They are important. But, you know what? I don't think that was the author's, say it with me class, intent. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what the author is doing is he is telling a story of how the God of all creation is the God of Israel, okay? All right, so that's the next layer of context. But then, guess what? When you get to Deuteronomy 34, is the story over then? No, it's not. You still find yourself wanting more. And so what we realize is that it actually takes the whole canon of Scripture for God to tell this story. And so that means the last layer of context for us is the whole canon, all right? So what I want to do right now is walk through Genesis 2 in light of the Torah, okay? And see if we can see some parallels uh, with the tabernacle. And then consider Genesis 2 in light of the whole canon. And then come back and see if we can see, okay, what is the point here, all right? So if we were reading along... Genesis, through the storyline of the Torah, what you would find is that there are a number of parallels between the Garden of Eden and the tabernacle. All right, what was the primary function of the tabernacle in the Old Testament? That's right. The tabernacle represents God's presence, okay? So here's the first um, parallel that we see, okay? Uh, good enough. Okay. Okay, this is our schematic of the tabernacle. All right, pretty impressive, huh? Okay, I was an art major, actually. I didn't go to fire school or history major. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I know, you're moved to tears right now at the beauty of this that you're beholding. Okay, if this is the tabernacle, what is this section right here? Anybody know? Mm-hmm, that's right. Most holy place, or I should call it the HOH, <laughs> the holy of holies. All right, the holiest of all holies. Okay. Uh, is just anybody allowed to go in here? Okay, who is allowed to go in here? The high priest. Amen. I am so encouraged. This is awesome. All right? Yeah, the Holy of Holies is not someone that, you know, Joe Schmo goes in and be like, hey, what's up, God? What's going on, man? Okay, yeah, you can do that, and you'll also die. <laughs> okay, is the high priest able to go in, like, you know, on a Tuesday for tacos? 
I don't know why I'm on tacos tonight. No. When is he allowed to go in? Once a year on the Day of Atonement, right? To make purification. Okay. Then you go outside, and then what's this place called? That's right, the holy place. Okay? Who's permitted to go into this area? The priests, right? Not just the high priest, but all kinds of priests. Short priests, tall priests, you know, funny priests, not so funny priests, <laughs> whatever. And then what is this called? There's actually not really a name for this, so it's a trick question. I just, I call it uh, the outer boundary, okay? Or the courtyard area. I kind of view this as, you know, whenever you're driving along the highway and you see those power stations with the chain link fences around it, and then there's just all kinds of weird stuff going on there, metal, wrapped around metal and stuff. And then there's usually signs on that fence. And what do those signs uh, try to communicate to us? Yeah, enter on pain of death, right? <laughs> okay, the outer boundary was for regular Israelites to know, whoa, I'm getting into a holy area. I need to be careful here, right? Okay, now think about Genesis 2. And I'm going to kind of lean on Genesis 1 just a little bit. First of all, you have the world, Genesis 1, right? Okay. When we get into Genesis 2, we find that God has separated a place out called Eden. And in Eden, he creates a garden. Okay? That's the first parallel. You see a three-tiered structure with the tabernacle, and you see a three-tiered structure in Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, the second parallel. Looks like I skipped one, actually. Sorry about that. Okay, let's go back to bullet point number one. Formed through God's speech. Genesis 1, 1 through 14, how does God create stuff? Yeah, right? He says, and, and just go quickly back to Genesis 1 and see specifically what words does he tend to use before each act of speech. Starts with an L. Yes. Let there be this. Let there be that, right? Okay, turn with me, if you have a copy of God's Word, to Exodus 25, verse 8. Right? This is getting into the context of God giving the blueprints for the tabernacle. And so he says this, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. And did you know that as you go through the blueprint of the tabernacle, God keeps giving instructions using the same terms that he used back in Genesis 1. Let them do this. Let them do that. He is building his tabernacle by giving verbal instructions to people. Okay, Everybody tracking with me on that? Let there be light, let them build. And you see this throughout the blueprints for the tabernacle, okay? Also, let's go back to Genesis again, Genesis chapter 2, verse 3. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now look with me in Exodus uh, 39. Exodus 39, verse 43. Okay. 
and Moses saw all the work, all right? I should have read a little bit earlier, maybe in that verse. God, at the end of the creation, he sees all of his work, right? And then he beholds that they had done it as the Lord had commanded, and so they had done it. Then Moses blessed them, okay? But you still see this kind of language. Once the tabernacle is completed, there's a looking at it and a beholding of it and a declaration of blessing over it, okay? All right, let's go back to Genesis 2.15. You might want to, um, well, never mind, we're going to Numbers this time. Okay, Genesis 2.15. This is where God is giving instructions to Adam on what he is to do in the garden. Someone read that for me, Genesis 2, verse 15. Okay, to work it and to keep it. The word there, work, avad, in the Hebrew text, and to um, keep it or to guard it is shamar. Now let's look at Numbers 3, uh, 7 through 8. Okay, in Numbers 3, God is giving instructions to the priest, to the Levitical priests, and here's what he says. They shall keep guard over him and the whole congregation before the tent of meeting as they minister at the tabernacle. They shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and keep guard over the people of Israel as they minister at the tabernacle. The words for guard is shamar, and the word for minister here is avad. It's the same two words that were used to describe Adam's role in the garden. Okay, So that's the next parallel that we see between the garden and the tabernacle. All right. Um, we don't have to flip through the text for these, but we see uh, the tree of life in Genesis 2, uh, verse 9. The lampstand, what shape? was the lampstand to be kind of um, molded in? What was it to look like? You can just give kind of a generic answer. Yeah, a tree, <laughs> okay? And it was to be perpetually lit, all right? And it is within the tabernacle. So you have tree of life and lampstand shaped to look like a tree that remains lit all the time, okay? That's another parallel. Uh, in Genesis 3, verse 24, this is following Adam and Eve's act of rebellion. And what does God do? Someone read that verse and just give me your own trans or your own version of it. What's happening in Genesis three twenty four? Yeah, you're not going back in there, right? You have these like creatures with flaming swords. Like, okay, got it, man. I'm not going in. <laughs> All right. The cherubim in Exodus 36, verse 8. What creatures were to be embroidered into the curtain that guards the Holy of Holies? Cherubim. Okay. Here's the point. The point of Genesis 2 within its literary context is that God made the world to be his cosmic 
tabernacle where we would enjoy his immediate presence. Okay, get this. If the garden is the holy of holies, and then where were Adam and Eve placed? If we're seeing the garden as a tabernacle. In the holy of holies, right? Okay, here's the point, guys. You and I were made to be in God's presence. We were made for that. Unfortunately, Adam and Eve's sin disrupted that, and so we've been kicked out of the garden. And just real quick, on kind of a pastoral note, I'm going to check my time real fast. Um, on a pastoral note, you and I have been trying to get our way back to the garden ever since. But sometimes we try to find our way back there by trying to satisfy ourselves with other things. I don't know what those things are for you. I know what they were for me. Um, but here's the deal. Uh, Augustine, who lived in the 4th century A.D. Anybody ever heard of Augustine before? Okay, amen. All right. Augustine once said this, Our hearts are restless until they are at rest in him. Whatever's going on in your life right now, ultimately, what you need to know and understand is that you were made to be with the God who made you. You were made to be in the Holy of Holies with him. Now, their sin messed all of that up. And God could have been well within his rights to say, hey, you know what? You screwed up. You made your decision. I'm done. I'm out. You want to be like me? You want to rule your own universe? Try it. Let me know how it works out for you. Spin yourself off into oblivion. God would have been well within his rights to do that. But guess what, guys? Genesis chapter 4 is in our Bibles. And the content of Genesis 4 is also pretty depressing. But the very fact that Genesis 4 exists is evidence of God's grace to us. Because it shows that the story goes on after Adam and Eve sin against him. And the rest of the story of the Bible is God moving toward us in His grace because He wants to bring us back into His presence. But that doesn't happen immediately. That's where we get into the canonical context, where we tap into the broader storyline of Scripture, if you will. Okay. So what does God do? His next move then is following Adam and Eve's rebellion, He sets up a Garden of Eden 2.0. And it's called the tabernacle. And it's where God's people, Israel, will be able to enjoy a relationship with Him. But it's going to be a limited relationship, isn't it? Do the Israelites enjoy the, the exact same intimacy with God as Adam and Eve did? No. Now, it was really cool. If you're an Israelite and your Moabite buddy comes over for a barbecue, I don't know if they actually have Moabite buddies or not, I imagine... Right? I mean, Ruth, there's, there's something there. All right, so maybe they were hanging out together some. But if your Moabite buddy came over for a barbecue, you'd be like, hey, hey man, Hank. This is a good Moabite name, right, Hank? Uh, Hank, dude, check it out. <laughs> you see that structure over there with the curtain and the, <laughs> and the stakes and the poles and everything? Yeah, man, what's going on over there? Dude, God is in there. No, nah, man, come on. No, I'm serious. God is in there. Yeah, he hangs out with us. Because he likes us more. No, God actually says, no, I didn't choose you because you were so awesome. I chose you because I am God and I have chosen to set my affection on you. Um, but 
that was the deal, is that God established a Garden of Eden 2.0 so that he could be with his people, but it was in a limited sense because our good buddy uh, Mike, the Israelite, there's another good Jewish Hebrew name for you, Mike, because Mike was not allowed to just go in here and hang out with God. He knew God's presence, but in a very limited extent. And you know what I think part of the point of the tabernacle was? Was to create in the hearts of the Israelites an aching to get back to the real Holy of Holies, the garden. Amen? Okay. Now, how does God do that? Look with me real quick in Genesis 3.15. Okay? This is kind of another plot line, and then I'm going to help fill in some blanks here. Um, Genesis 3.15, this is uh, after you had the uh, deal with the serpent and Eve and Adam and all that stuff. And so God says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, this is now setting us up for how we're going to be brought back to the garden. It's going to come through one who is born of woman Okay, and the serpent is going to inflict some damage, right? He's going to strike him on the hill. But ultimately, he will have the decisive victory because he will bruise the serpent on the head. And that's a lethal blow. I love what um, C.S. Lewis said about this. Any C.S. Lewis fans in the house? I I hear you, man. Love it. C.S. Lewis said this. On the back of Satan's neck is a nail-scarred footprint. Huh? Come on, that'll preach, right? (laughs) Okay, so I love that because Jesus is the snake crusher. But until the snake crusher was born, what God does is he chooses a people to be his, Israel. And they're going to enjoy a Garden of Eden 2.0 in a limited sense until the snake crusher comes. And when Jesus is born and he dies on the cross, turn with me to Matthew chapter 27. And then we're going to be looking at verses uh, 50 to 51. Someone read this um, text for us. Matthew 27, 50 to 51. Amen. Thank you, brother. The curtain that blocked the way to God's presence, right? That had the cherubim stitched in is torn in two. What do you guys think that signifies? This happens as Christ dies on the cross and that curtain is torn in two. What do you think is theologically, what's going on here? Yeah, yes, all right. There's a children's book called um, The Garden, the Temple, and the Cross. Is that right? The Garden, the Curtain, and the Cross. And in that book, it's, it's a wonderful book. Um, even though it's written for kids, I, I really love it. I think you should love it too. Uh, but in that book, um, he, he, the author describes the curtain as the big keep out sign, right? Because of your sin, you can't come in. But then Jesus dies, the curtain's torn in two, and so now the story goes on. Yes, you can't, because of your sin, you can't come in, but Jesus died for you, so now all can come in. Not just ethnic Israel, but now Jesus has made the way for all 
who will come to trust in Jesus now, they can be brought into God's presence again. That we can find what our hearts were made for and what our hearts have been longing for and aching for. And that is to be in the presence of God. Jesus has cleared the way for that. So now people from every tribe and nation and tongue can come and be in the Holy of Holies again. And it's all because of Jesus. That's why, guys, when you go out on campus and you're evangelizing and you're sharing the gospel, what you're doing is you are inviting people to come into what they were made for, which is to know the presence of God. And the only way they're going to know that is if they come to trust in Christ. All right? And but that's still not quite how the story ends. This will be our last stop. Turn with me to Revelation twenty two, sixteen. Actually, I think I may have written the wrong reference. I meant twenty one sixteen, so. 22.16 is good too. You should read that verse as well. Um, but 21.16 is the one I was actually aiming at. All right. This is John. He's seeing a vision of the new heavens and new earth. By the way, you see garden language all over the place in Revelation 21 to 22. When we get to verse 16, we're seeing the new Jerusalem coming down. And John says this, The city lies foursquare, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. So you have a perfect cube. A massive cube, but a perfect cube. Okay? Now turn with me to 1 Kings 6, 19 through 20. And this is uh, the blueprints for the temple. Temple is simply the permanent version of the tabernacle. Okay? And we're going to get some more dimensions here. Genesis 6, or excuse me, 1 Kings 6, 19 through 20. The inner sanctuary he prepared in the innermost part of the house to set there the ark of the covenant of the Lord. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 cubits, 20 cubits high and he overlaid it with pure gold. That's describing the Holy of Holies in Solomon's temple, another perfect cube. The way the story of the Bible ends is that one day you and I are going to be with God, not just in a garden, but in a garden city. And the whole city is going to be the Holy of Holies because we are going to be in the immediate presence of God again. Amen? And guys, that's how your story ends. Here's the cool thing about the story of the Bible. What separates the story of the Bible from Stranger Things, right? Or Friends, another show you probably shouldn't be endorsing. Uh, <laughs> whatever sitcom you enjoy that has kind of a storyline. But what separates the story of the Bible apart is that this story is actually true. And this story tells us about the God who made you. And this is where God's story intersects with your story. I don't know what you've been through, okay? I don't know what you've done, where you've been. But if you have trusted in Christ... Your identity is not in what you've been through. And your identity is not in what you've done. And your identity is not in where you've been. Your identity is in Revelation 22.16. 21.16. Gosh, why is that so stuck in my head? That's your identity. Because this is, 
this is how your story ends, friends, if you are in Christ. Amen? All right, cool. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the work of Jesus. God, we thank you that because of him, we can be brought back to the garden. Father, we long for that day when Jesus will return and usher in the new heavens and new earth. God, where we will see your face. But unlike Adam and Eve, we will not be ashamed. And we will not hide and cower in our sin. But because of Jesus, because of his finished work, we will be made pure and whole. And we will be able to enjoy you. Father, until that time, God, help us to be faithful in the task of going and telling our friends and our neighbors and our co-workers and the people that we hang out with that we would tell them about Jesus and what he has done for us in making all of this possible. Father, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The uh, fill in the blanks there, if you're one of those folks like, man, I really got to have these filled in correctly, and I think I forgot to go back. So here they are. The point, God made the world to be his cosmic tabernacle uh, where we would enjoy his immediate presence. Okay, But Adam and Eve forfeited that through their sin, so God established a Garden of Eden 2.0 known as the tabernacle. This was only intended until Christ came and made us fit for God's presence again through his finished work. All right? All right, guys, thank you all so much.